Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. <laughs> great energy, great energy. I'm very energetic today, I think because I'm exhausted. And we have so much good stuff to talk about this week. Oh, yes, we absolutely do. We've got some exciting type design news we're going to share. And we're back on a research-heavy nerd alert <laughs> where we're going to be talking about how to start a revival typeface. So that's been really fun to look into and has been eye-opening in several ways. Lots of good stuff, like you said. I'm excited that you researched this and curious to have this conversation because that is very much like the beginning of the league and something that I was really passionate about in the very beginning before there were a hundred other million things to do. So I'm really curious what you learned. Well, I want to hear your thoughts on it too, because I've never done a revival. You have worked on one before. A couple. Curious what that process was like. Yeah, exactly. That's going to be fun. But before we even jump into any of that goodness, got to talk about the first link in the newsletter We've mentioned it a few times, our next workshop, which is preparing the perfect type design pitch with Thomas Jockin. We're very excited about it. It's on February 28th. We're doing it on, what is that, a Monday, right? At least for us in the Eastern time zone, 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern. So you can kind of tune in after work if you're interested in this kind of thing. I think it's going to be really great. We've mentioned before, and you probably heard if you've been listening to the podcast last week, talk about it plenty, but we kind of did a, a test run with Thomas. And Thomas has such a wise and logical business mind. And we usually do these like two-day workshops, and this is two hours. And it is going to be chock full of information that, if I'm honest, I think... Anybody who thinks that this is just about type design pitching is sleeping on a hit here because I think a lot of this is going to be just business acumen that is going to yeah. be really good advice if you're doing any kind of proposals for anything. <laughs> I think you mentioned that Thomas has both logical and wise advice. I feel like that perfectly encapsulates everything. He has really great principles and pillars and workflows and strategies to follow for pitching type. But the wise part of it, so that's the logical side, but like the wise part is that he has so many stories of when he's messed up or when mm. things have worked. And I think that really is going to contribute to the depth of the workshop too, because he wants you to learn from his mistakes. And I think that there's something really amazing in that. And he, you know, he is an educator too, outside of this workshop. So it's going to be great. I can't wait. Yeah. All right, let's jump into some cool links this week. Yes, the first one coming from Future Fonts, but also coming from podcast listener and fan, Sophia Type Love. Oh my gosh. So this is Sophia Ty's uh, font Streco. The blog post is called The Story of Streco, and it's on the Future Fonts blog. And she talks about the methodology and process of designing this very, very cool reverse contrast stencil 
typeface, which is kind of in a league of its own. Those aren't necessarily words you usually hear um, (laughs) strung together, but there's a bunch of sketches that are shared. She talks about her experience designing while she's been a student and why she loves Future Fonts as a platform for being someone that's on the earlier side of her type design career. The incredibly imaginative letter forms. A lot of them are made from literally rectangles and quarter circles, which is just think about those constraints and how it can manifest itself in letter forms. I think it's really creative, going to be really inspiring. And I'm just so excited to share this. She's been a fan of the league for a while. So if you're a fan of league, always just share your work. We want to feature it. We want to get more type designers that are earlier in the career, especially women type designers out there in the spotlight and encourage the heck out of them. I especially love, you know, this is not exactly my normal kind of jam for this type of typeface, but it is so immensely creative and visually interesting that down towards the bottom of this article, the specimen booklets, some of it you're like, I don't know what that says, but I know that looks cool. And I feel like at some point there's going to be some brand that is like, this is us. And they're going to take this and make like giant posters that look wild and neat and interesting. And at some point, like everybody's going to know this font, I feel. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I love it. I love that it's on future fonts. So you can like invest in the future of the font as well. Always an incredible way to see young designers kind of get started. So all here for it. Which point of note is if you actually click on the link to buy a license for Streco. A, it's only 20 bucks for like one to five people, which is very affordable, I think. But you should know at the moment, it's only desktop license. You can't use it on the web or in an app. So take note. Good to know. Also, the name Streco, I love her little blurb about it at the end. Um, It is like a very abstract word. S-T are her initials. So that's like the start of the word. And then Reco is short for reversed contrast. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, I love it. And she also said that streco is short for stress and contrast, like streco, which I also don't know that. I love a dual meeting. That's great. I love it. Super fun project. Our next article we have is very fascinating, in-depth look at size-specific spacing of fonts. So this is from Typotech. It's from Peter Bilak. And it's really interesting. The first half of the article talks about why the principles of spacing are so essential to typefaces, really saying that they are essentially the glue that turns letters into words. I think we all know that if we're fans of type, that a typeface isn't complete without some beautiful spacing. You can even like make a Beautiful letters look bad if you don't have good spacing. So talking about some of those principles, but then later talking about how important it is that different sized letter forms have different spacing within the letter forms. So different side bearings, basically, if you're familiar with type design words or tracking and kerning, if you're just more on the graphic design side of things. Talking about when you have text at smaller sizes, like you need more space between your letter forms than if you have text at maybe like 80 points. So that's, um, I mean, I feel like that's something that you start understanding when you're more of like a junior designer. But then understanding how that would work within a typeface is actually a whole different story. So the Typotech typeface Lava comes with this built-in optical spacing. So that means that they spaced and kerned 
the family through like several iterations so that at six points, there's different spacing than 10 points and 10 points, there's different spacing than 48 points and so on and so forth. And I think understanding how that gets built in, they make these graphs of the curve of where's the threshold for when they decide to change the spacing to make it more legible. Uh, I haven't really read anything like this before, so it was a really nice look into it. That is kind of cool. And I especially appreciate the graphs because it seems like a scientific approach to where is the threshold, which I also have never quite seen somebody describe it that way before. This seems to me to mirror a lot of what some of the big peeps in variable fonts are doing about either optical size rather than optical space, which are obviously related to. And also that makes me think of one of Thomas's projects which started as Lexend and then carried over to, I think it's called Readable Pro. I should know. (laughs) Where the width of the letter and the space between the letters are variable. So as you change, they're connected to each other to make something more readable as you go on. So I feel like there's a lot of people playing with different connected attributes like this. And it's interesting to see the scientific approach of where the cutoff is for them, at least. For sure. And it sounds like they specifically say in this article, we built a variable font where the shapes of letters do not change, but their spacing and kerning was size specific, triggered by the user's size selection. So yeah, you're like totally on the same page. Also interesting, they talk a little bit about the history of some of the kerning technology in the Mm. Adobe Creative Suite, which I just like have never quite understood that history about why we have optical kerning as an option Mm. within InDesign, which I would love to do a nerd alert on at some point talking about like, when do we use this? When do we not? Yeah. So controversial, very polarizing topic. Um, So I don't know, just lots, lots of really good golden nuggets in here. Super educational and fascinating. Yeah. And uh, you were kind of mentioning this seems older. The technology here has been around. And one of the things that I learned in working on some of the Google variable font educational stuff is that a lot of the technology for variable fonts has been around for a long time, like decades. Yeah. And it was like embedded in there, but never utilized. Yeah, I remember we did that. We did a nerd alert, I think, on the history of variable fonts. And I was like, oh, shoot, people were talking about this like in the 90s, but it wasn't actually coming to fruition. Every time I hear the 90s now, I think of there was some TikTok or something where they were like, if they made Austin Powers today, it would be set in 1991. And I was like, that's evil. Don't. That's horrible. What? Oh, my God. Oh, my God. That's some real comparisons. But 90s is getting farther away every moment that we speak, unfortunately. No. (laughs) Sorry. Well, yeah, this is definitely a good article to check out. 10 out of 10. Finally, in type and design news. I love this. Um, This is a little announcement from Type Tasting, which is an organization run by the wonderful Sarah Hindman, who we interviewed last year. She is hosting a typography pub quiz, which I think is like hilarious and amazing. It's a virtual (laughs) quiz, virtual pub, and it's all going to be questions on type related trivia, which just like, man, that just really speaks to my heart. 
There's going to be some questions on typographic tattoos, type on beer labels, can you spot a movie from a font, and best of all, us here at the league have contributed a couple trivia questions. Potentially one or two might be related to a nerd alert that we've done. So if you mm-hmm. have been listening to our podcast, you'll be able to participate and feel great about that answer, I think. But it just sounds like a really fun freaking activity and that we just want to promote and say, hey, this is happening out there. I know you and Steph are coming up with some very clever questions. Yes. So I'm, I'm excited how it's all going to come together. Plus, <laughs> there's a fun game embedded in here called Fontadol. Fontadol. Which uh, I know you're a Wordle fan because you have made me play every day since last hey, week. you're also a Wordle fan. Don't just put this on me. <laughs> you are too. It's like Wordle, but with font names. So that should be fun. I love it. That sounds What a fun excellent. time. Just fun. Have fun. Yeah. Sarah. Type can be fun. I feel like Sarah's always making type more fun. All right. It's time. It's, it's, it's time. that time. We still don't have a sound effect. It's been years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's a nerd alert, guys. <laughs> that's it. That's what we got. The thing is, I could be higher energy, but that's as much as we're getting today great. out of me. Thanks. Okay. Revival type. Fun stuff. Very interesting. <laughs> Did some research. And that's the nerd alert. Thank you very much. <laughs> Whereas, like, I think we're all familiar with revival type. We all like compartmentalize some typefaces that are older feeling as like, oh, they're revival. But revived typefaces can take so many different forms. And I think that researching how people usually start a revival actually has been like very eye opening. I think throughout the years, people's kind of exposures to different kinds of revival type is broadening, which I think is really exciting. And I think reviving typefaces is like a really great educational tool too, which I think I discovered a very old league Tumblr post, which I'm not encouraging people to go to because half the links are broken. But I think (laughs) that was mentioned that it's a great educational tool to really understand how our letter forms have been made because we like to think that every we're just innovating type all the time. But so much of the letter forms, it's so important that letter forms and they're legible and readable. They're actually just referencing letter forms that were around like 300 500 years ago we're talking about text type you really can't be reinventing the wheel there you are looking back at to see like how things have been done so i feel like type is one of those industries where history is just pretty much woven into everything that we're doing which i think is pretty cool so what is a revival and like why are people making them what's the point so a revival typeface, simply put, is like a remake of an original typeface, usually one that was designed a long time ago. And that's like kind of the more traditional way to think of a revival typeface. Revival typefaces can have so many different source materials. It's basically looking at letter forms from some sort of source material and rematerializing that in a different way. You can be remixing it. You can be really, really faithful to the original Again, huge plethora. We've seen different revivals for plenty of classic fonts like Garamond. There's tons of Garamonds out there. They're all a little bit different. They all have their own unique qualities. One isn't necessarily more Garamondy than the other because there's different interpretations. And, you know, if we were using Garamond exactly to how it looked like when it was first created, the type would look a little bit janky. So, like, things have been, like, cleaned up throughout the years, especially when we're talking about really old type. Sometimes you want things to look really worn in and maybe you'll keep some of the qualities of the type that looked like it was really, you know, a tactile thing. 
But it's important to know that like there's a bunch of Baskervilles, there's a bunch of Ditos, there's a bunch of Padonis. Most of the classic type we have many iterations of. And making a revival typeface, like I said, requires a lot of research on the history of the type in question. You need to understand the craft of the original typeface. You need to understand a little bit more about the production, modes of productions and the styles of the time. I think Type at Cooper... Maybe the extended program, they like pretty much always do a revival typeface because I think it helps people for their first type project to understand um, a lot of the like essential components. So reviving type doesn't necessarily mean copying scans of type into a digital software. There's a lot of decision making that happens. Sometimes if you have a really old typeface that has outdated styled letters or, or numerals or signs, like you have to think about what the type designer would do and be like, if I was in their shoes how would I create these new characters? So it's interesting that it's not really just copying pasting. There's still a lot of decisions to make, but it's not as starting from scratch. To me, that seems like an easier place to start as a type designer, especially an early type designer. I feel like it gets you closer to a win earlier. You have something to compare it to. Like in the beginning, it's so much harder to invent something totally new because you're like, I don't know if I'm following the rules of type because I don't know the rules that well yet. And so you can like compare it to something and be like, it's similar and it works and there's like a little bit of me in there. And so it feels like a win. Exactly. And I think that's a great reason to start a revival typeface. If you're interested in type design, the whole idea of it is very scary to you. Like this is a much more accessible way in. Um, than being like, I'm going to invent some letters and then I'm going to space them. There are some parameters to work with. And like you always say, limitations breed creativity or whatever the Micah-ism is. (laughs) So I think about that lots in this instance. So how do people start? So I mentioned that it's all about kind of looking at source material. That could be a lot of different things, which we initially think maybe, okay, there's like the really old school way of looking at punches and matrices if you're looking at metal type. So that's like how we were casting letters. Or if you're thinking about wood type, you would look at the actual wooden type, the physical wood type. Yeah, we don't all have access to all those things. So then probably the next best thing or like the more default option is like old specimens. So I believe that's how you guys did League Gothic, right? League Gothic and League Spartan both came from old specimens from, well, I don't remember. I have like a large book that I found on eBay Okay. You know, in like 2009 or something where it was just a ton of fonts. A lot of them were from the American Type Foundry, which if you don't know that history is this conglomerate of type foundries once upon a time that went belly up. And a lot of it, a lot of their work entered into the public domain. So there was just like absolutely no issue with licensing, which Mm -hmm. is another thing we can touch on a little bit of licensing and why it's okay to do a revival. And then also all of Barry Schwartz's Gaudi fonts are revivals Mm -hmm. that we have in our library, too. Yeah, lots of good stuff. So, yeah, specimens, scans of old specimens, you know, that kind of makes me think of, like, the next default in our brain. The thing is, there are so many different ways to get source material. And I think as, you know, the type design industry broadens, like, our source material has actually been broadening with different voices and stories being told. So... You know, a less obvious option for source material is ephemera. You can look at old packaging, Mm. old brochures, or old catalogs, stationery. Literally, I watched this movie this past weekend, and they said, you know, culture used to be passed 
down to us through objects when we had more books, more CDs, more DVDs, more record. Like we all had a lot more objects in our lives before. And I think that I love and appreciate book jacket lettering and to take book jacket lettering and turn it into typeface. That's a revival. That's like something, I don't know, that could be really cool. There's calligraphic manuals. Those are basically like specimens for calligraphy alphabets, which are great fodder. Uh, but you could also use like graffiti as an inspiration mm. to revive, understanding the structure of those forms. Here's my favorite. You could use inscriptions as source materials. So that's like letters that are carved into a surface. And to get a really accurate shape of those inscriptions, you could do something called a rubbing. <laughs> In a graveyard, maybe. You could go to a graveyard and rub <laughs> some graves. One of my first interactions with Micah was like, I think we should go to a graveyard and do some rubbings. And I thought he knew what rubbings meant, and he definitely didn't. So now it's just like the inside joke. <laughs> um, so yeah, rubbings is when you like literally take paper to a carved surface and rub a crayon on it, and you get like the texture of whatever that surface is onto a piece of paper. So I believe Adobe Trajan and Donatello were actually – Typefaces that use rubbings as a source material, which I think is really interesting. Trajan. That's yeah. a classic for every romantic movie made before 2001. Oh, yes. Or heroic movie, like heroic. any movie. That's what I think. And then finally, another option that I actually think has recently been used in a lot of typefaces I've admired is documentation of signage. So we have to remember that a lot of signage in the world we live in is probably designed without a digital font if the sign was like mm -hmm. put together before like what the 90s so there's a lot of stuff out there I think of the new black in our catalog by Trey Seals he was using the signage from the Chicago freedom movement and he was basically using photographs of the signage that was being used so I think that is one way you could use signage then there's vault alarm by mm. Dan Cederholm which I believe was like I think a plaque on the side of a building he was walking past like every day. And then there's one of the most famous revivals that we always overlook, which is Gotham, which I'm pretty sure was using New York Port Authority signage and documentations, like literally photographs of that as reference. So you would never think Gotham's a revival, but that definitely can be considered a revival for sure. I think something that's pretty interesting is that we don't necessarily have to be strict recreations of the original source material. Jonathan Heffler has this great quote that says, revivals can be strict recreations, oblique interpretations, or even works of satire. So it's like you really have like a huge range. Like it's nothing that's that's super constricted. There are really one-to-one -one revivals of super old type is actually called a facsimile, which we don't see very often because they're so faithful to the original typeface they're often like using archaic letter forms or have symbols that aren't contemporary so they're usually used by like antiquarians and academics so that's like one side of the revivals was it the em fell types or m fell types yeah those seem like I really used to close love to those i still use those i actually really do love those and i do wonder if they've yeah. been modified to add contemporary characters like you have to think there's probably been like a little bit more of a robust character set today than there probably was back then but yeah, that's a great example of that typeface has like the rugged outline of all the letter forms that makes you like feel like it's so tactile. And then somewhere in between that and the totally out there side of the scale is people trying to revive the spirit of a typeface. So focusing on, yes, the forms that like are originally seen in this typeface, but allowing for a little bit more kind of abstract and emotional descriptors of the type to lead the way. So sometimes I think about hobo 
that James Edmondson does. I don't even know if he considers this a revival. But if you actually look at original Hobo, H-O-B-O, compared to his Hobo, H-O-B-E-A-U-X, he captures the spirit of Hobo so well, but like refines the letter forms to be that much more good looking and (laughs) feels sophisticated. And in a way that I really feel like that's something that captures the spirit the first example that comes to mind. And then a really cool revival example kind of on the other end of the spectrum I found was called a type family called Marion, M-A-R-I-A-N. It's from commercial type. Marion is a family that actually revives a whole wide canon of type history. So they like clearly reference, they say, Guillermont, Fournier, Bodoni, Baskerville. I mean, already we're imagining like a very large range of typefaces from our past. Um, and so there's several different styles of type in this family, but the revival itself is purely trying to revive skeletons. So the type itself is fairly like mono weight from what I remember. There's not letter form contrast, but instead you get the essence of the skeletons of these past typefaces. So there's a black letter typeface in there. There's like something that, you know, kind of resembles transitional type and it's all like reduced to its like essentials, which I think is really interesting to consider that a revival as well. So like, again, huge range of stuff going on. I'm just very disappointed that there wasn't a pun in there about, you said, like, reviving the spirit of a typeface. We were talking about uh, rubbing of graves. You just said something about skeletons. Like, what the heck, man? This could have oh had my a gosh. theme. I know. I should have. Um, it should have been our dead. Halloween episode. Oh, shoot. Maybe we'll have to do, like, a revivals <laughs> part two for that. We'll revive the conversation about the revivals. Yes, I love it. I mean, that's what I've got for everyone today. It's not the whole process of how to do a revival. There's certainly a lot of gaps to fill in. But hopefully this like inspires some people that maybe are thinking about dipping their toes in the water of type design and want an easier place to start or just curious how people even begin this or like I thought revivals were boring, stuffy old typefaces and now they're like maybe they're not as boring as I thought. So, hey. Mm, I like that conclusion. That's my goal. Thanks. Thanks. It's basically like, I think the most interesting part from my perspective is the benefit of doing it for a beginner, like we were talking about, that uh, it's an easier place to start from. Uh, It gives you some feedback as you're making it, even if you're kind of making it solo because you have something to compare it to. And it's fun to anybody who is making their first font is like a type nerd like us. And it's fun to like go research old fonts that you would want to revive and then put a little bit of spin on or try to revive super faithfully either way. Like, I think it's I think it's fun. Um, mm-hmm. So for sure. I'm, and like you I'm think of you like you think of like Trey Seals catalog and so much of it is revivals and Yes, there are revivals of old letter forms, but there is so much more depth to those typefaces because they're like, you know, letter forms that came from communities that were previously marginalized. So I think like revivals actually do have like a really strong potential to be super powerful in the end and to tell stories that maybe have been forgotten. We think about all the women in type that like were not credited at all (laughs) for like Mm -hmm. centuries, how that could be another avenue. So fun conversation superb my friend superb and so animated excellent well i hope um you decide to join us for the workshop on monday if you can't join us live you get a recording thomas is gonna be awesome that's you know where you can see me and micah next after you listen to this podcast before we're in your ears next week love it doodle doo doodle doo